right, we are going to study the little digging into Luke chapter 19. This is going to be, we're looking at the historical part, but when we look at the history that's recorded in Scripture, we want to catch the application, the principle, the truth that we also see there. And we're going to be considering Palm Sunday. We're going to consider not only what it is, but what it would have to do with us contemporarily, if you could see it that way. So Luke chapter 19, will begin in verse 28. When he had said this, speaking of Jesus, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it as just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of the colt said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. All right, well, what we have here is actually prophecy fulfilled. Why is prophecy important? Well, for a couple of reasons. I'll just touch on some that you have been exposed to meaning we live in a time where people have embraced a, a really strange theory and thought on origin of species and a worldview. They've embraced, and they carry the title of higher learning, but it's not accurate. It's, it's academia. It doesn't always have anything to do with intelligence. Academia says to you and me that through the magic of time and millions of years, humanity, way back when, started in a mud hole, self-produced, and become a creature, and then the, everything just kind of made itself. Which, honestly, could you just consider that theory? It's just, to me, it's, I don't, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I've already been there, I've already got there far enough, you get it. That's what's presented as truth, and we, can't, we don't know. Well, I could suggest to you, we, we can know. What if the creator of the universe declared in detail of what would happen so that when it happened, you would know he's not, he knows what he's talking about. That's what prophecy does. Prophecy tells ahead of time, this is going to happen. And then when it happens, you can go, oh, that's just what God said would happen. And it's not just some spontaneous thing that just is like, Imagine that there's no designer to the design. There's no creator to the creation. It confirms prophecy. It puts you and me, I believe, at a, at a very personal advantage in regards to sorting out truth. 
if he says this is how it's going to happen, and then he shows it happened that same way, that's pretty encouraging to me. That's very encouraging. Now, I also believe that when he says through multiple prophecies, hundreds literally, that something's going to happen, and it happens that exact way, then when I'm looking forward to his return, because he said he's coming back, I'm going to say he nailed it the first time, he nailed it the second time. It's going to be just like he said. So therefore, I get encouraged. I'm excited. I don't have to wonder, how can you know? Well, he already told you. And this is how it's going to unfold. Truth to build on is so important. We have a sure foundation. He has taken you and me as followers of Jesus Christ who are stuck in the mud, sinking in the sand, this miry clay the Bible speaks of of life with no foundation and no sense of purpose and hope. He snatched us, taken us out of that and placed us on the sure foundation, the rock, Jesus Christ. So we have this relationship with him and then he unfolds the the truth of history and shows us his faithfulness through his word, through these things. So this story is fascinating because what you learn changes how you live, correct? What you learn changes how you live. You know that growing up. What you learn changes how you live. You know that in your workplace, you learn what you're supposed to do, you do it. Or you don't work there. You, you know, I mean, it's just all the, all the different areas. Academic, in the sense of learning and you know, vocation, and we get it. It applies in our spiritual life. Verse 28, they're traveling from Jericho. Jericho was roughly 40 miles by trail from Jerusalem. I mentioned trail, they had roads. But it was really, the route was dependent upon the water source because it's a pretty barren land, but it's also very mountainous. Um, I was able to go there uh, last fall with a group, and uh, they took this tour bus where I don't think I would have taken my old Suburban. Seriously, I would have thought twice about it. And their spatial reckoning is phenomenal and how they navigated these turns. And I'm not all there in the mental side anyway, so I like looking down out the window over the edge, but it's a long ways down. It's some of the most rugged country, even compared to some of the stuff I've hunted here. It's fascinating. Why do I say that? They walked that. They traveled that. We read they went from Jericho to Jerusalem, and without sometimes a sense of this wasn't just catching the bus. This was, there was an, it was an endeavor. They're traveling, and, and as, he, as they come into um, what we could call the wilderness side of the Mount of Olives, where, where Bethany and Bethage, these two little cities are, um, as they come up to that, Jesus gives instruction to, to two of his disciples. Notice there in verse 29. He sent two of his disciples. As I've said, as we go through this history and we unfold the prophecy We want to think, well, what's it got to do with me personally? I mean, I'm glad to have the knowledge, but does it affect how I live? It does. There's embedded within this some real simple and powerful applications. And we find one part of it right here. He sent two of his disciples. If you look in Matthew and Mark and then over in John to find the names of who they are, (laughs) you won't find them. They are two unknown disciples. They're not named. Why is that relevant? Well, because they're unknown to you, but well-known to him. And there's more unknown disciples than biblically known disciples. Does that make sense? Think about the application of that. Because he doesn't tell tell us their names. 
His disciples should desire obedience instead of recognition. Obedience instead of recognition. Recognition may come by position and order and even, you know, example. But we should be just want to do what he directs us to do. And I love this. I've, I've looked at this before and I thought about how many things are done and we're not told by name who did it. It's not that he sees them as any less. He just reminds you and me. It's between me and you in obedience. And you do what he is prompting you to do. As near as you can discern, as near as we can sort out what his leading is and his instructions are, we just want to be obedient. In verse 30, we see them, you know, him giving them more details to the instructions. You know, they don't realize they're fulfilling biblical prophecy at the time. You know, later they realize what God did in and through them. But in that moment, they're probably like you and me. He gives them instruction, go on up, up to the next village. Uh, there on the side, um, there'll be a donkey and a, and a colt. Go ahead and steal them, bring them back to me. I mean, there's kind of a weird instruction if you get right down to it. He knows that they're going to go, well, what if they ask? So he gives them, listen, go up there, and if they ask, just say the Lord has the need of them, and then they'll come. They, they don't know they're fulfilling prophecy out of Zechariah, Old Testament. They're just being obedient. They're just doing what he's called them to do. It's the same. We're fulfilling prophecy when we walk in obedience to God. Do you realize that? Most of us don't think of it that way. I, didn't, I never really thought of it. Like, I'm fulfilling his declared word when I walk in truth. Because we are revealing a love like no other love. We're declaring the gospel. And, and sometimes we get to use words. In your workplace and what you do and how you live, you're revealing a love and a commitment to God that's because of who He is. And people see it. They don't necessarily know what you believe or your doctrine or where you attend church. They just know there's something uniquely and pleasantly different about them. And so that love is being revealed. And I tie that together with Romans chapter 10, verses uh, um, 13 to 17. Where we love people enough to tell them the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hate having to make decisions with insufficient information. Can we agree? You ever had to make that decision, but you just don't have all the info, but someone presses you for a decision? I hate it. That's why I want to declare the gospel. I don't want people to make a decision about Jesus Christ until somehow they have an understanding about the person, Jesus, who is the Christ. I can see why they would reject religion. I can see why they'd be offended by hypocrites. I want them to make a decision, whatever it ends up being, because they've, been, they've, they've known the love of God. They've met the person through conversation, through uh, you know, presenting the gospel, teaching them the word, bringing them the truth. I want them to make that decision. What's interestingly enough is when we're, we're doing that, we're fulfilling the gospel. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Well, how will they believe unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless that person's sent? And how will they be sent unless people gather together to send? You see, that's literally what Romans 10, uh, 13 through 17 is speaking of. And I thought about, that's, we are fulfilling the gospel. We are fulfilling the prophecy. He has set as the primary means by which the truth of Jesus Christ is presented to the world. He has made that to be through you and me, his, his children. 
those who are born again. He has made, this is how the people will know primarily. The Holy Spirit, yes, reveals and works and stirs, but he has selected us to be a part of this fulfillment that whoever believes on him shall be saved. I just find it mind-boggling to live in a temporal sense in a short span, you know, however many days I've got or years, this short span of human existence, me, you, is going to affect eternity for someone. It's going to have an eternal effect on someone's life. It'll impact where they decide to spend eternity. It's fascinating that we're a part of this. I, I say it and belabor it a little bit because let's, let's just take a fresh perspective sometimes. We get bogged down by goals and opportunities and desires and problems, and, but yet still, this is still our purpose and calling as his followers, to just to live out, let come forth from us the love that's been placed within us that that love would impact people. And, you know, you'll get a little more detail next week. I'll, I'll give you a, a trailer, a very short one. Next week's message is going to be choose love. Choose love. Because it's really what the world needs to know and need to know about that, making that decision. So anyway, let's move along in this particular study. As we see in verse 32, those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said them said to them. So practical. We're reading the history. This happened. We're pulling out of it these principles that can be put into practice in our lives. Jesus frequently gives enough detail to obey. Enough detail to obey. Now, some of us go, oh, well, yeah, but if I do that, then what about this? And do you mean now? Can I wait till later? And how will I do it? I don't have time for this, and I can't, I can't, I don't want, ah, Maybe I'll wait. He just gives enough detail to obey. Obey, And our part would be, he's given us enough even for faith to grow. For faith to grow. Enough to go. See, they, those who were sent, went. It's not a big thing. I'm honestly, can you imagine? It's not that big a deal. We'll go get the donkey, whatever. But it is a big deal because it's an act of obedience. We shared first service. I'll, I'll give it, uh, share with you, with you as well briefly. One area of my life that I experienced this, in that the Word of God is very specific. I believe very clear, addressing things in our lives that we don't want to talk about. Um, as a young Christian, I have a high school education type vocation. Translation: low cash flow. Okay, I'm raising a larger family. I had five kids at that time. And so I'm trying to make ends meet. I've become a believer. I'm seeing God work in my life. And, and then there's this issue of tithes and offerings. Tithes speaking of 10%. On what's that mean? Off the gross, off the net. What's that mean? Offering was all. And I just wasn't open to it. Because you know what? I'm just hoping I can pay my bills. I'm just hoping I can you know, somehow not go in the hole or have that. And so I'm just kind of figuring it out. And it's like through another teacher, he, he brought this simple truth. Dan, just give enough for faith to grow. It wasn't extravagant. It wasn't even hooked up on percentages and caught up on how much I could afford. It's just like, just, just give to me enough that your faith can grow. Don't be so stingy that you just treat it, turn it into a formula, but yet don't be so extravagant that you think, I owe you now because you give so much. 
just give in a manner that's enough for faith to grow. And it was so powerful, and it turned out to be something that he taught me in other areas of life. Just give me this area to the degree you'll see faith growing. Well, I can't do this. I can't do that. He's like, could you just chill out for a minute? Could you just listen to me? Just, just take this step over here and let faith grow. And then in that area of my life, or you, know, you, you can fill in the blanks for yourself. Because guess what? Those who sent, those who were sent went and found it just as he had said to them. I hope your life story with God, with Jesus, is this. That you've taken that step of faith as he's prompted you and led you. You knew what to do. You chose to do it. And you found it just as he said it would be. They found it just, I mean, they get there. And they're untying the donkey. And the owner says, what are you doing? What were we supposed to say? Tell them the Lord sent us. The Lord sent us. Okay. Okay. Mark actually says, we'll bring it back soon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're just renting it without paying for it, you know, kind of a thing. That's my translation. But here, you see what happened? Just as he said it would, that's how they found it. You're going to find this to be true in your life. When you step out in faith in that area where you're reluctant, when you just do what he's directing you to do, you're going to find it just as he said. You're going to find this calming presence. You're going to find this awareness. You may find things are still going to be tough. See, I had another experience we're going through a really hard time sorting out whether I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing or find some other way to, to do life and not be in what we refer to as ministry. It was just a few years ago, and I'm up on a place called Teapot, the foothills outside of town. And as I'm sorting it out, it's raining and hail, and it was late winter, early spring, and just a nasty day, which I've learned to like. But... As I'm coming off the hill a little bit, I stop, kind of find shelter, sun starts shining. And it's just in that one spot, sunshine. I'm like, oh man. And I really sensed his presence. I don't think it because of the in, environmental comfort. I just think he was just literally just kind of you know, awakening me a little bit. And I was just wasn't whining as much. And so he just kind of gave me a piece. I was like, just I'm with you. Just stay the course. Like, oh. and as I look across the valley rolling off the Owyhees across the plain, coming towards us through town and up to Teapot, is this black, nasty cloud. I'm not talking about the gray ones. I'm talking about this is dark. It is just rolling across, all the way across. And it's like, here it's coming. And I'm like, oh, I better get out of here. But any, as I'm standing there looking at it, he goes, that's what's coming. And it wasn't just the physical, it was the spiritual. And I found it just as he said it would be. It was really tough it was coming up. I, and so that storm was interesting because I had this real piece. He's saying, listen, I, just, just trust me. Stay the course. It's going to get tougher. It's going to be difficult. And not what you want to hear, right? You'd rather have me say, hey, just go by faith. Life gets better. You have unicorns and popcorn and everything's happy. No, there's just times. just like, <sighs> but he just give me a piece. This just, just go. So I walk down off the hill, and I've got the gear, you know, I'm, I'm ready for it, sort of. And this storm is nasty. I mean, I'm leaning into it. It's like just whipping me. It's like 50, 60 mile an hour winds. I'm totally white on the front side when I get to the truck. Sleet and hail just stuck to me. And I'm like, whoa. And as I get to the truck and get all kind of ready to get in, and I look, and here's the break in the clouds. 
Now what about the Owyhees? They're kind of glowing with snow a little bit, and the sun's hitting them, and it's coming. And that whole picture was just teaching me, he is faithful. Just walk as his disciple. When he sends you, just go. And when he says it could be tough, it, he doesn't, it will be tough. Man, I, don't, I can't I relate that story even with some enthusiasm because it was a monumental point in my life to start holding on to that. That yes, things will be tough, but he is faithful. He is faithful. So understand it will be just as he said, but he is faithful. Verse 33 and 34, interesting as we look at that. As I mentioned, they asked what's going on. The Lord has need of him. The Lord has need of him. This is a person we also don't know who it is, the owner of the cult. They're, the disciples have stepped in faith. This unknown person has a part in prophetic work. And, and we don't even know whether they're a believer or non-believer. We have know nothing about them. But understand, the Lord has need of him. Hold nothing back. Hold nothing back. When it speaks of need, it speaks of he, the Lord has use of this. The Lord has business with this. The Lord has purpose for this. And how many of us have subconsciously segregated and separated things of this world and things of the spirit? And so some things we see, I just don't see how God could use this. This is just physical stuff. But understand, don't hold anything back. I've, I've seen God use amazing things and things that you wouldn't even categorize as spiritual and he's utilized those times of interaction and people getting together and, you know, even sometimes recreation. He's used the first purpose. Just don't hold anything back. You'll see that even if it's something you don't really know, I don't know how this, he could use this. How could he use a, a couple donkeys? Seriously. But he did. So when you have that prompting, that sense of like, I should just let, use this for God's purposes, you'll see a, an amazing thing take place in this practice. Now in verse 35, we have... Them throwing down their clothes on, or putting their clothes on the colt, and then verse 36, they spread their clothes on the ground. So, what we have here is actually this, this uh, fulfillment of prophecy unfolding. John, in his gospel account, tells us that they actually laid down palm branches at this point. Now, they lay down the palm branches. This is actually why we call it Palm Sunday, it takes place on a Sunday. But understand, Palm Sunday was not merely a, a spontaneous reaction by a developing crowd. See, he's been, um, he's got a bounty on his head, Jesus does. I don't know if you realize that, but he, the, the, the religious community, the Pharisees, really, you know, put a, put a dollar on his head, and if anybody knew where he was, then they were to turn him in. And so as he's coming up from Jericho, they all know this, those who are with him. And he gets to, to this area around Bethany, and you know, the crowd starts coming around and people that came with them and they hear he's in town. So this developing crowd, but understand, this was not just a spontaneous thing that unfolded. It was a fulfillment of centuries old prophecies. We're told, bring it up on screen in Matthew 21, his account of this, we're told that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. It was actually in Zechariah 9, verse 9, and it said this, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb on this one, saying that's some pretty good detail 
for prophecy, right? Can we, can we, that's, that's specific. This is not Nostradamus regurgitating ideas, some false prof- prophecy stuff. This is specific. This was over 500 years before what we're reading about here in the Gospel of Luke. But that actually is still a part of a much more detailed and intricate prophecy. We'll find this, and let me, let me bring this to you. In the prophecy of Daniel, in chapter 9, verse 25, and I'm going to give you the condensed version to stay on topic for what we're studying. You can dig in later. But in Daniel 9, 25, there's this prophecy that there would be 483 years until the time Messiah comes in to restore and rebuild Israel. When does the 483 years start? Well, we would go from that prophecy in Daniel 9, verse 25. We would consider the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is a man of God who's had a heart for his people, but because they've been in captivity, and now there's some back in Jerusalem trying to get everything put back together. Nehemiah is over with King Artaxerxes, serving under a secular king. His heart's broken for his people. Well, the king gets a read on that. The king picks up that he's, he's got this broken heart because his countenance, his facial expression revealed it. And so the king, of course, is concerned why the guy who looks out for him, his second-hand man who's supposed to keep the poison from getting in this cup, is now a little distraught. Nehemiah, what's up? Why shouldn't I be brokenhearted? My people are in, they're at great risk. It's in disarray. There's nothing. And then Artaxerxes, what do you want to do? And Nehemiah prayed in the moment. And King Artaxerxes authorized a decree that he could go and restore and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Nehemiah understand that Artaxerxes authorized the decree But he said in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it was according to the good hand of God upon me. So he sees God's hand opening this door. What date was this decree issued? It was issued on March 14th, 445 BC. That started the 483 year period. Now we could go, okay, well, 483 years, let's calculate that. Well, you have a Gregorian calendar, you have the Jewish calendar, you have some things to consider. The best way to do it is to take and turn it into days. And it turns out to be 173,880 days. So from March 14th, 445 BC, and you run it forward at 173,000 plus days, you end up at April 6th, AD 32, when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself as a king. That's some pretty good detail. Wouldn't you agree? There's a a man by the name of uh, Sir Robert Anderson. He has a book called The Coming Prince. And he spent his life in breaking this down and and sorting it out and seeing, man, this is how it fits. This is amazing. Now, of course, when you do something like this in the church and you can look at this and go, man, this is how it unfolds, what you'll have is is arguments, right? Because that's what we're good at. In the church, we're really good at arguing about things. You know, I don't care. (laughs) Maybe I'm far enough along. Like, I'm not concerned about the petty bickering about these some of these little small things. All I know is this is this is true that it's spoken of over 500 years before, and the details are revealed in the actual event 
recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this prophecy was fulfilled. Well, what's the advantage to prophecy? So when you see it taking place, you know God knows what he's talking about. He said hundreds of years prior to this event, it's going to happen, and then it ended up taking place exactly as he said. What's the response to the people? They don't know necessarily the details I just spoke of, but we see the response of the people in verse 36. Many spread their clothes on the road. Once again, a little different in culture. They don't have a wardrobe for the most part. Most of these people don't have a walk-in closet. They barely have a walk-in house. And so they have often only one change of outer garments. And so for them to lay their clothes down as an act of of homage, of, of adoration, an act of worship, was a sacrifice of praise. It really was. They, they were given up not out of their excess, but all that they have. It requires sacrifice, commitment. See, as they're seeing this, and this commitment requires sacrifice. Do we agree with that? That's across the board too. Can we agree? If you're committing to something, you're giving up something. That's true relationally, that's true vocationally, that's true athletically, academically, in every area of your life. If you're going to do this, I've got to give up something. Well, this sacrifice of praise, this, this commitment that requires sacrifice is so beautiful because praise is expressed more than just words or song, okay? We do have our praise time. We'll have some tonight at 5.30 we'll start. But it, it, it's... It's an expression of the heart, and they're just giving with what you could call um, unashamed adoration. Unashamed adoration. What is that? Well, unashamed adoration does not draw does not draw attention to oneself, nor does it withhold attention to God. When we gather, we have challenges in our in our gathering. I know this because I know me. I know a lot of people. And I know many of you, and here's one of our challenges. We have this opportunity in this time to praise and worship by way of music. We've gathered in this place. Do we raise our hand? Do we raise two of them? Do we sing loud? Do, what about the person next to me? There's all this stuff that goes through our mind. I get it. Don't, don't think that some you know, animated expression is more spiritual. It isn't. But what we want to understand, there's just times that we do need to have that expression that's unashamed adoration. I'm, I believe we should be sensitive to the people around us. I don't believe we should carry ourselves in a way, in a public expression, that draws more attention to ourselves and takes attention away from the Lord. And there's no easy answer for this. It's not like you can say, well, you do this and you do this, and at this song you do this, and you tell everybody to do this. I don't believe that. I believe it's a personal expression of love. But you need, I need... Moments of unashamed adoration. I am so glad that currently, I say it humorously, but yeah, currently we're not under surveillance in the mountains. So I can go into the hills and I can just worship. I walk, I love being up there. I look like a raging lunatic to some people. You're walking a trail like this, your backpack on, you're walking sticks in the air. Praise the Lord, God, you're so good. If you didn't hear me, you go like, just drop him on the spot. Seriously, he's going to be a, he's going to infiltrate humanity, this animal. I mean, people would just go, what is with this guy? But you see what I'm saying? And I'm not doing it to get attention. I'm reluctant to even say it. But you already know I'm a little weird anyway. No problem. 
there's got to be that moment. You crave it. You long for it. In the intimacy of your relationship with God, you want uninhibited praise. You want unashamed adoration. It's a cry of your heart because of his presence. And I'm not, I don't know how you're going to get it. You've got to find it. Where you go, how you do it, maybe the closet, your prayer closet, I don't know. But be open to just having that time. It's powerful. It's so beautiful. Praise him with what you have. Offer a sacrifice of praise. I'm going to keep clicking along here because some other really good points I want to bring out. We see in verse 37, as they are now, I believe, at the top of the Mount of Olives, and now descending down. They're going to come down um, to, I believe, close to the Garden of Gethsemane, cross the Kidron, the Brook Kidron, across the Kidron Valley, and start up towards Jerusalem. And as they do that, as they're crossing over, we're told that the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Get this. For all the mighty works they had seen. They rejoice in his power because of all the mighty works they will see. No, they're not sure of those. All the mighty works that they had seen. What mighty works have they seen? Well, we don't get to see them, right? I'm not going to see him walk on water. I didn't get to see him, you know, multiply the bread. I don't even know how it all unfolded that he fed thousands of people at two different times. I don't know how he did that. I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to see some of these things. That's not the, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. I believe those are powerful works. Those are amazing works. The mighty works. Sinners received love. Hearts were healed. Lives were restored. The fraudulent religious hypocrites were called out for their hypocrisy. The whole, there was a shift in how people would relate to God. There was a relief that you didn't have to be like those fraudulent ones. He was presenting like he really believed this. He lived it. And people were seeing it. Those are some of the most powerful things. And those continue to happen today. You know, they got to see a woman of Samaritan heritage engage with Jesus at a well. And the disciples are like, what is going on? Because here is the compassion of God revealed through the actions of Jesus. He talks to this woman at the well, which many even today have their people they don't talk to in the church. He's he's going to help this man whose 12-year-old daughter is on her deathbed. And I'm sure this guy's wanting to hurry him along. Let's get there. He stops as the crowd's pressing in. The multitude is around him. He stops and says, who has, who has touched me? And I think Peter probably said, who hasn't? Give me a break. They're pressing in on every corner. What do you mean? No, no. I sensed the power going forth from me. And here was this woman that he engaged in. A woman who had not been touched in 12 years because of her condition. A woman who was cast out and, and really treated terribly. And he stops and he touches her. The compassion of God is revealed in the actions of Jesus. That's the mighty work. That's the transformative work that took place then and takes place now. I've seen people's lives change. I'm I'm an expression of his mighty work because you don't know me how I used to be, but I do. And I know what he's done in my life. And I hope you can look at your life and go, a mighty work has been done. And I will praise him for it. Don't 
you know, falsify or glorify who you were before. But recognize you're not the same. And it's the mighty work of God that's changed you. It's not your diligence to the word. It's not your devotion to prayer. It's not your faithfulness to, to church stuff. Don't, I'm not negative about that. But the transformation is because of the presence of the living God. Because of the personal, loving, gracious, kindness work of God in your life. And these disciplines and these expressions are because you, you, you want to see more of that. It's, it's just fascinating to me. But anyway, let's remember his mighty works in your life. I believe it'll produce a truth-filled memory. I have a really dumb question for you, but I'm pretty good at them. Um, have you ever forgot anything? It's kind of an odd question because if you forgot it, you can't tell me because you don't remember it. But we know we forget things, right? Like some of you are probably looking for your wallet or your car keys, maybe today. There's all, all kinds of things we forget. But I believe there, are, there is a point where we can exercise a personal dif- discipline. And we can cherish our memories and choose love. We're not going to remember everything. But you can remember certain things. And if you elevate them through repetition and, and just realization and you start going back to them, guess what? You recall them, correct? You, you can tell stories of when you were a child because you've repeated that story, you value that story, whether it's crude or true, whichever, you repeat it, you remember because it it's, it's important to you. Cherish your memories, choose love. Choose to remember the mighty works of God because you're going to need it. When the storm comes and you, you, you're walking in to that dark cloud, you're going to need to know the faithfulness of God. You want to know the mighty works he's done. We see in verse 38... They received him as their savior, as their king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why they're giving this expression. They received him as their savior, as their king. Remember the declaration the angels brought at Jesus' birth? They were told this. Glory to God in the highest. That's what the angels say. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And here we see also peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's this relationship with God is so elevated above any other relationship. It's so important that we're willing to rejoice and to receive. Receive him as king means we're subject to his authority. He's a great king. Receive him as your king. Bringing us to the last portion as we wrap up our time in verse 39 and 40. Some of these religious representatives those who were supposed to properly portray the character and nature of God to humanity, to the Jews specifically, grossly misrepresented him to the point that they really are going to try to kill him, to get rid of him. It's just crazy that they missed it by so much. Don't be so your way that you can't see his way. That's what happened. They were so you know, cloistered and drawn in by their perception of what religion and a relationship with God would be. It's because of this, and maybe they sat under this teacher and this rabbi and this scribe, and this is how it has to be. And they missed it totally. Do you know that happens in the church too? We have, because of our religion of reference, our background and places we've been, and we think it has to be like this, and it should be like this, and we start bringing it in almost subconsciously. And rather than a peripheral understanding of the patience and love of God, we have a narrow-mindedness of this is how it has to be for me. 
The Pharisees fell into that. And, and many professing believers historically have likewise. That's why there's such division many times. That's why there's such bickering and such, you know, just oh, arguing. Because there's an unwillingness to see maybe God's way of doing things is broader than my experience. Maybe there's things he does outside my denomination or non-denomination or personal experience. Maybe his way is just amazing and beyond. You know, the biggest threat to your theology is your Bible. Do you realize that? Whoa, no, Dan, you got that backwards. My, the, my theology comes from the Bible. No, it's one of your biggest threats. Because until we're willing to see these realities and these truths and recognize... <laughs> Do you realize that Adam and Eve wept? They were, re they were heartbroken. They lost two sons. Cain killed Abel. The family dynamic imploded. Do you realize that? Because that upsets your theology, agreed? Because God is love and only good happens to good people. Do you realize, do I realize, do we consider millions of Jews were killed it's a historical truth. God is on the throne, but this happened. We know this happened. Do you think about the family member, the child, the granddaughter, the, the, the loss of life and the emotion? God is still good, but do you see the collision of our perceptions? And it has to be poured in with a teachable heart to realize the truth of who God is. Because we usually... On the surface, because of emotion and experience, that's not right. I can't accept a God like that. I can't believe something like that. If God would let something like that happen. See, you see what I'm saying? There's a point we have to back away from what we think it should be and realize his way is different. He has a purpose for your life. Know that purpose. And I would say, no, Jesus. I found in my life some of the most painful relational truths, some of the most difficult days have actually, when I've seen and sensed the Lord the most, not with visual eyes, but really realize He is with me. He's carrying me through these hard days. My mind doesn't want to accept that. My mind's in hyperdrive like too much caffeine. It's wanting to accuse God and blame God and turn from God. But the reality is teaching me God is faithful. And I want to know God as He is. I don't want to shape Him. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to say He has to be this way and you have to be this way. I want to live within the confines of Scripture with no compromise, presenting and realizing God is faithful and worthy of our praise. When things are going great, I love it. When things fall apart, He is still faithful. He is still faithful. What is my point to all this? God is in control. Psalm 29.10 The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord, Lord sits as king forever. God was aware. He was there at the greatest natural disaster of all times. Oh, yeah, we get a little snow in the spring, and we get upset. But there was a bigger disaster. It's called the flood. The whole planet submerged. The greatest natural disaster, no room for argument, not even from California and their 800 inches of snow or Utah or wherever. No, the flood. And we're told that he was on the throne and he sits as king forever. Even in that moment, in that time, which is hard to reconcile, he is there. 
God was aware. He's on the throne. He's there. And the same for us today. No matter how great our disaster is, he's here. You know, these disciples will face a serious test in just a matter of days. This is Palm Sunday. And we know, we look through scripture, and we'll look at some this week, how the rest of the week unfolded leading to the cross. It's called Good Friday because of the accomplishment, but it was a dark day. The cross was a horrible thing to observe. These disciples are following him. They've given everything to this man. For all they know, it's, it's over. He is as good as dead. He's dead as far as they know. He's placed in a tomb. You think of the tragedy. Think of the, the mess they now have. How do you deal with this? How do we reconcile? He is dead. We are done. But guess what happened? Their worst possible weekend became their greatest experience. Palm Sunday to the darkness of the cross and then Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Victory for all who would believe. Victory for all who would believe. So we'll park it right there. Encourage you to join us tonight at 5.30 as we praise and worship, fellowship, have communion. Greg and Natalie are going to come up and we're going to close with a song of worship, an expression of our love. But I like as you stand with me, to direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, I believe, capsulizes uh, what we've just looked at and what we, would, I would say, need to do, need to know. We need to know the grace of God. We need to know, need to know in a deeper way our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for this time. I thank you, God, that you do just speak to our heart. You bring nuggets of truth. You bring revelation and insight. You bring comfort in the storm. You reveal your faithfulness. And so, God, may each one of us, may we hunger and know, may we choose to know you more, that we would grow by your provision Grow in the grace. It's unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. We know, God, we can't produce it. We can only receive it. And we grow in the grace and the knowledge of you, Jesus. To know you as Lord as you lead us through hard days. To know you as Lord as you provide in perf- for us perfectly, individually and as a gathering. Thank you, God, that we'd see your hand. Thank you for salvation, Jesus. Oh, to you be the glory both now and forever. And everyone said, amen. And thank you for joining together.